Good morning. Welcome to St. James. I'm glad that you guys are here. And welcome to whoever's watching on the live stream. I'm glad that you guys are with us as well. Uh, let me run through a few announcements. Uh, one is kind of a big announcement. Well, it's not a big announcement, but it's an announcement that I should have made last week. And uh, this is very meta. It's an announcement about announcements, interestingly enough. So we decided to, uh, so we're having problems getting announcements in the bulletin, and the bulletin was already too big. And so we were kind of slimming the announcements down and leaving some out, and then um, uh, always trying to figure out how, how do we cram in everything that we need to get in there for people to know what's going on, and never doing a very good job of it. And so what we decided was, is we were going to print out, we, were, we weren't going to put announcements in the bulletin anymore. Instead, what we're going to do is we're going to print out on a sheet all the announcements. And so um, we can put anything we want in there, but it won't be in the bulletin. It's going to be in a separate sheet. And what we decided to do is, and I know that this might be a little bit awkward, what we decided to do was to put it out in the back after the service so when you leave, you can grab it. And one of the reasons why, why we decided to do it that way is because um, we want this to be uh, a time where we meet with God and not a time where we come in and sit down and uh, kind of go through the church newsletter uh, and then, you know, maybe about 20 minutes into the service, we finish reading the notices and everything that's going on. And then we're, okay, well, it's, t it's time to worship. So that is available to you, but it's going to be back there um, as you leave the service every week. And Cheryl's done a good job of, of getting all the announcements that we can into there. If you have announcements, some of you have had announcements before in the past that we haven't been able to squeeze in there. Um, the, your announcements should be able to get into the bulletin from now on. Also... There's a bulletin board upstairs and downstairs. It's going to have a lot of info on it, so check those out. One more thing that has to do kind of with announcements is this, is that we had been putting a QR code with attendance. You could take your attendance electronically or you could give electronically. That QR code is no longer going to be in the bulletin. It's going to be, in the, it's going to be on the guest register that's at the end of your row, which you should grab and you should sign and you should pass down so everybody else can sign as well. If you are the kind of person, like if you're a hipster and you uh, do attendance uh, virtually, it will be on the, uh, you don't have to sign up on the book, the, the QR code will be there. And for those of you who give via Tithely, the QR code for that is on there as well. Okay, that's my announcement about announcements. And now we can do more normal announcements, which is, uh, Schedule today is uh, on track. To, everything on there is good. Youth confirmation class, which will follow Sunday school uh, afterwards for those of you who are involved, 11.45 to 12.45. Did I say that time right? I think that's right, 11.45 to 12.45. Uh, parents, pick up your kids at 12.45. New members class tonight from 6 to 7.30 p.m. Uh, we had our first get-together last time. Uh, it's not too late to... Um, uh, to come and join us. That was a stupid thing to say. It's never, it's not, it's never like too, too late. We're like, if you show up, I'm going to be like, nope, too late. You can't, you know, leave the church. I won't do that. Uh, so uh, feel free to join us. That's for uh, members, non-members, uh, whoever wants to participate. It is the normal track for church membership. So if you're interested in that, please join us uh, for that. Okay, well, uh, two more things. One, a ladies Bible study is on uh, a short hiatus. We'll have more information coming up uh, I think next month, uh, about what's going on with that. Men's Bible study, we are uh, starting a new study. Uh, 
for those of you who come to Men's Bible Study, we are getting together and we're going to do kind of our accountability uh, group thing. For those who have ears to hear, you know what that's about. That'll be this Wednesday. Next Wednesday morning, we're starting a new study. We're going to go through a, um, a book uh, by J.I. Packer, which is called Meeting God. And what this book is, there's 12 studies and they're going to go through a bunch of texts from the Bible. There's one from Acts in here, Exodus 33, a couple from the Gospel of John, a couple from Isaiah, one from the Psalms, one from Daniel 4, Romans 8. And we're going to talk about the nature and character of God. So if you're interested in participating in that men, 6.30 Wednesday morning, let me know. I will get you a copy of this, and then we'll pick this, we'll start this in a couple of weeks. Um, so let me know if you're interested. Okay, I think I, that's a lot I know, and I don't want to keep on droning on. I think that that's all I have by way of announcements. Let's go ahead and stand and begin worship.
continue in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Lord, have mercy upon us. Christ, have mercy upon us. Lord, have mercy upon us. Our help is in the name of the Lord who made heaven and earth. If you, O Lord, kept a record of sins, O Lord, who could stand? But with you there is forgiveness. Therefore, you are feared. Since we're gathered to hear God's word, call upon him in prayer and praise and receive the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ in the fellowship of this altar. Let us first consider our unworthiness and confess before God and one another that we have sinned in thought, word, and deed, and that we cannot free ourselves from our sinful condition. Together as his people, let us take refuge in the infinite mercy of God, our Heavenly Father, seeking his grace for the sake of Christ and saying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Almighty God, have mercy upon us, forgive us our sins, and lead us to everlasting life. Amen. Because of Jesus, God has forgiven all our sin. Hear the gospel of Christ from 1 John. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Amen. Surely Jesus has borne our griefs and carried our sorrows. Yet we esteemed him stricken, smitten by God and afflicted, but he was wounded for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his stripes we are healed. All we like sheep have gone astray. We have turned everyone to his own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. Psalm 27, verses 1 through 9. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord, that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in his temple, for he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger. O you who have been my help, cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Spirit, as it was in the beginning, is now, and will be forever. Amen. You may be seated. Father, your holy 
Testament reading is Daniel 7, 1 through 14, and I'll admit, I took out the normal reading for the third Sunday in Epiphany and put this one in because Daniel 7 is so important to understanding uh, the book of Revelation. And for, for those of you who aren't familiar with, uh, I've quoted it a couple times, if you're not familiar with um, uh, apocalyptic literature, let me just warn you going in, it's kind of weird. It's not code, it's symbol. It's not meant to be taken literally either. There's not actually a literal beast coming up out of a sea. But the beasts represent um, foreign empires that were oppressing God's people, like the Assyrian beast is in here. Uh, there's a, a beast that represents Babylon and Persia. And I'm not going to get into that now. But w in the, in the uh, Revelation reading, there's a lot of references to uh, Daniel chapter 7. So I thought this would be a good week to read it. So in the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon... Daniel saw a dream and visions of his head as he lay in his bed. Then he wrote down the dream and told the sum of the matter. Daniel declared, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And four great beasts came up out of the sea, different from one another. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. Then as I looked, its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the ground and made to stand on two feet like a man. And the mind of a man was given to it. And behold, another beast, a second one like a bear. It was raised up on one side. It had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And it was told, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and behold, another like a leopard, with four wings of a bird on its back. And the beast had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth. It devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I consider the horns, and behold, there came up among them another horn, a little one, before which three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots. And behold, in this horn were eyes like the eyes of a man and a mouth speaking great things. Okay, I know that's weird, it's definitely symbolic and it's definitely geopolitical. There will be references to beast with horns later on in the book of Revelation and we'll spend more time on them there when we get to it. But now, here's a, a script flipped in verse nine. As I look, Daniel says, thrones were placed and the ancient of days, that's God, took his seat. His clothing was white as snow and the hair of his head like pure wool. 
His throne was fiery flames. Its wheels were burning fire. A stream of fire issued and came out from before him. A thousand thousand served him. And 10,000 times 10,000 stood before him. The court sat in judgment and the books were opened. I looked then because of the sound of the great words that the horn, from back in verse 8, was speaking. And as I looked, the beast was killed and its body destroyed and given over to be burned with fire. As for the rest of the beasts, their dominion was taken away, but their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I saw in the night visions, and behold, with the clouds of heaven there came one like a son of man. And he came to the Ancient of Days and was presented before him. And to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom one that shall not be destroyed. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Oh, just a quick comment before we jump over to the Revelation one, Revelation reading, is that this is before Jesus is born. The book of Daniel is written at least seven, several hundred years before Jesus is born, and it's, fun, it's, it's easy to think of Judaism as a monotheistic religion. They believe in one God, which they totally do. But even if you go back to the Old Testament, you will see these texts where there's an, for instance, there's an ancient of days who's given all kinds of worship and it controls everything. To him is given honor and dominion and power. But then here's this other guy, uh, one who's like a son of man, a, a human guy who approaches the ancient of days and also to him is given the same thing, worship and dominion and everlasting power. And it's not really explained in Daniel. It's just kind of left there that somehow there belongs to both God and this other creature honor and worship that rightly should only belong just to God. And the question's sort of left unanswered till we get to the New Testament and there's this Jewish construction worker that people are bowing down to and saying, forgive my sins and giving him divine titles and calling him Lord and bowing down and worshiping him and he's not stopping them. And uh, when we get to Daniel 4 and 5, you'll see a similar sort of thing. Honor given to God, but also to this other person who shows up. Person might be the wrong way to say it, even in Revelation 4 through 5. After this, I looked. John says, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, this is the voice of Jesus back in chapter 1, said, come up here and I will show you what must take place after this. Okay, one quick comment, and then I'm not going to interrupt myself for the rest of this reading. A lot of people have read this and say, oh, Revelation's about stuff that happens in the future. He's showing us stuff that happens after this. But what we know from this, I'll show you at least one example here in the reading today, is it's stuff that's happening right now. So, for instance, in uh, chapter 6, which we'll look at next week, it's not happening in the future. It's happening now. There are saints who are in heaven and crying out for justice because the resurrection hasn't happened yet. I alluded to this last week, but Revelation 12 is going to tell the Christmas story. It's going to tell the story of the birth of Jesus. This is not stuff that's all happening in the future. It's stuff that's happening also in the past and happening now. So when uh, the voice says to John, I'll show you what must take place after this, it doesn't mean in our future. It means in the sequence of visions that John is having. He's saying, let's go look at the next one. What's going to happen next is what's happening. At once, John says, I was in the Spirit And behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of jasper and carnelian. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. 
Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments, with golden crowns on their heads. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there, and before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass like crystal. And around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Uh, Chapter 5, then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a strong angel proclaiming with a loud voice, who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look into it. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and with seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth." Then I looked and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying, To him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen. And the elders fell down and worshiped. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Please stand for the gospel reading. The Holy Gospel according to St. Matthew chapter 4. Glory to you, O Lord. When Jesus heard that John the Baptist had been arrested, he withdrew into Galilee. And leaving Nazareth, he went and lived in Capernaum by the sea, in the territory of Zebulun and Naphtali, so that what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah might be fulfilled. The land of Zebulun and the land of Naphtali, the way of the sea beyond the Jordan, Galilee of the Gentiles. 
The people dwelling in darkness have seen a great light. And for those dwelling in the region and shadow of death, on them a light has dawned. From that time, Jesus began to preach, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. While walking by the Sea of Galilee, he saw two brothers, Simon, who's called Peter, and Andrew, his brother, casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And he said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. Immediately they left their nets and followed him. And going on from there, he saw two other brothers, James the son of Zebedee and John his brother, in the boat with Zebedee their father, mending their nets. And he called them. Immediately they left the boat and their father and followed him. And he went throughout all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction among the people. So his fame spread throughout all Syria. And they brought him all the sick, those afflicted with various diseases and pains, those oppressed by demons, epileptics, and paralytics, and he healed them. And great crowds followed him from Galilee and the Decapolis, and from Jerusalem and Judea, and from beyond the Jordan. This is the gospel of the Lord. Praise to you, O Christ. Let's confess our faith with the words of the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. The third day he rose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven and sits at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he will come to judge the living and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Christian Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. You may be seated. Every 
Daniel 7, and then Revelation 4 and 5, and then Matthew 4, the reading we did, and then you sing, Lo, he comes with clouds descending. That's really like a worship service right by itself. There's really not much more you need to do beyond that. But um, I have to preach a sermon, because uh, that's what you pay me to do, at least partially what you pay me to do. Uh, but this is one Sunday when I would be tempted to say, like that Revelation 4 through 5 reading is like just standalone good, just by itself. And in fact, this morning, one of the things I want to do is I want to try and distance myself and any sort of like, um, uh, not, we're going to do a little bit of this, of course, but I want to theologize as little as possible and just try to describe what this text is about. And um, because it's just, it's just good on its own. And um, so I'm going to ask some uh, journalistic questions of the text and um, think about it, uh, sort of just bask in the imagery here and in the glory of it, and then have communion and celebrate being with Jesus. Um, I do want to remind you, though, before we go in, that what we've done in the past couple weeks in Revelation 2 and 3 is don't leave that behind. I want you to remember kind of the brokenness and the fallenness of the church that we read about in Revelation 2 and 3. Its weaknesses, the sins that it struggles with, its fears, all those, we're not leaving those behind and doing something fundamentally different today. What we're doing today is part and parcel of what's going on in chapters 2 and 3. I'll explain more when we get to the end of the sermon. Meanwhile, let's just ask a few basic journalistic questions of this text so first of all, just we're going to talk about who is here, and that's just I'm not, I'm not even going to really say a whole lot about it. We're just going to go through and set the scene. Who are the players in the story of Revelation 4 and 5? What's happening? Why is it happening? Where it's happening? And then we'll be done. All right, so first of all, who's here? There's a handful of uh, main characters here. In fact, you'll, you'll see when we get through it, there's, there's a, the better question would be who's not here? There are so many people here. So first of all, it's hard to miss the fact that God is here. The Father is here. Look at chapter four, verse two. At once John says, I was in the spirit and behold, a throne stood in heaven with one seated on the throne. With one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian. Those are semi-precious stones known for their beauty in the ancient world. And around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Now that first around the, that, that phrase around the throne there is not actually in the Greek. It basically just says, I saw, I saw somebody on the throne, and it looked like Jasper and Carnelian in a rainbow, a rainbow that looked like emerald. That, that doesn't even hardly make sense. It's not even really anything that you can say, what, what does that look like? It's actually, he sees a vision of God, and it's just this burst of colors. That's all he has for us in the vision. Well, so this is God the Father who is accepting worship. In, the, in chapter four. But the Holy Spirit's also here. Look in, in verse five. Um, from the throne came flashes of lightning, rumblings, peals of thunder, and before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. Now I know it says the seven spirits of God there. That's actually revelation language for the Holy Spirit. And I'm not gonna stop. We, we did this back in chapter one. I'm not gonna stop here and talk about why he would refer to the Holy Spirit as the seven spirits of God. I will, though, in adult Bible study downstairs afterwards, once again, we'll go over the connection. Uh, so join us downstairs for that. Just suffice it to say that this is the Holy Spirit who is there. So you have the Father, you have the Holy Spirit, and then, of course, you have Jesus as well. Uh, chapter five, verse five, uh, 
uh, he's told, we'll, we'll look at this verse more later on, the line of the tribe of Judah, the root of David is there. This is Jesus uh, who shows up here. So the whole Trinity is here in chapters four and five, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Also, all of God's people are here. So God is here, Father, Son, Spirit. All of God's people are here. And uh, you get that a couple of ways. I'll, I'll point out one way here at the beginning and another again at the end of the sermon in the final point. Chapter four and verse five, um, I'm sorry, chapter four and verse four, around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. So again, this is, this is a vision that he's having. This is not, so uh, the question isn't like, uh, are there really like 24 chairs around the throne of God? That's not the point. The point is that it's a vision, and around God are 24 thrones. What's the, what, what's the deal with 24 well, almost everybody agrees, and we'll look at this more again in chapter six and following. I find myself saying that with a lot with Revelations, that a lot of the imagery is gonna carry over from chapter to chapter. Well, uh, what's the significance of 24 elders? We have the 12 tribes of Israel who were God's people in the Old Testament. When Jesus comes and starts his ministry, he calls 12 disciples to himself. This is intentional, by the way. Jesus picked the number 12. It wasn't just random like, I got 12 friends, I'll just invite all of them. It's actually, he intentionally is saying, I want 12 people around me because he wants everybody to know that what he's doing is he's recreating, he's reestablishing is a better word, the people of God, that, that he is establishing the new Israel around himself, gathered not around temple, like the 12 tribes would have been gathered around in the, in the wilderness, but gathered around himself as the new temple. And so what John has in this vision is these 24 elders representing both God's people before Jesus and God's people after Jesus. In other words, all of God's people are represented there. Not just represented, but actually present in ways that are really, really cool, I think. And again, that'll be the last point. We also have a lot of angels here, including, I didn't know how, how, how much to dip into this into the, in the sermon. Probably not a lot. I'll just make a couple of points. You have these weird guys in uh, chapter four and verse six. Uh, Middle of verse six, around the throne on each side of the throne are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. If you're familiar with the weirdo visions of Ezekiel one and two, you'll recognize these four characters. Um, the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. So these four angels who are circling around the throne, the four living creatures, each of them with six wings in verse eight, Full of eyes all around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty. Well, this, this happens to Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6. You remember. Maybe you remember. If not, I'll quote a little bit of it for you. In Isaiah 6, uh, you know, hundreds of years before this, 600 years before this, Isaiah has a vision, he says. And in the vision, he sees the Lord sitting on his throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe fills the temple. And surrounding the Lord are six seraphim, with uh, three seraphim with six wings and with two wings they cover their face and with two wings they cover their feet and with two wings they fly and they never cease night and day to sing holy, 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 Lord God of Sabaoth. We say that in the Sanctus. Uh, holy, 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 Lord God, Lord God of Sabaoth. That's just the Hebrew word for almighty or the Hebrew word for of host which is just a fancy way of saying, it's a, a fancy Hebrew way of saying Lord of armies. Lord who controls the most powerful armies in the world. Well, 
Um, Isaiah sees the vision of these seraphim. John sees the vision too with the added detail that one looks like an ox, one looks like a lion, one looks like a man, and one looks like an eagle. What's going on with this? Probably these uh, angels are representing God's creatures. So, So it's not just the humans that are represented, just humans but also all of God's creation, which is gonna be a key, a key player here in, in this worship service. So the lion, as the king of all untamed, untamed animals, the ox, this, is, this will be less familiar to you, the ox as the king of tamed animals, we're less familiar with, it, with this because uh, for those of you who did grow up on a farm, you probably did not use oxen. In the ancient world, the oxen were famous for their strength. In fact, um, you notice the, the horns language in Daniel 7 and a little bit of the horns language in the Revelation reading. It's a sign of power. Oxen have horns, and their horns were a sign of their strength and power. You also have a human being. One of the angels looks like a human, representing humans, along with the 24 elders. And you have an eagle, which is the king of the, king of the birds. So these angels are representing all the created order, along with the 24 elders, which represent humans, and along with God, who... Uh, who stands at the center of the whole thing as the subject and object, the central piece of the whole worship service. Also, more things about angels. Chapter five, verse 11. You'll see it's not just these four, but then I looked and I heard around the throne of the living creatures and the elders the voice of many angels, numbering myriads and myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the Lamb who was slain, joining in the worship service as well. Okay, so that sets the scene. You have God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. You have God's people, the 24 elders, represented by the 24 elders. You have God's creation, represented by these four weird-looking angels. And then you have the whole army of heaven gathered around the throne, worshiping God. Okay, that sets the scene. Now, let's get into it. What's happening, why is it happening, and where is it happening? First of all, it's hard to read chapter four and five and not notice that what's happening is an eternal worship service. A worship service surrounded, centered on, not, not just God, not just the power by the Holy Spirit, but centered on this Lion, lamb. So it's eternal worship, chapter four, verse eight. They never cease to worship. Uh, These four living creatures never stop worshiping. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. And what, what verse nine, if we keep on reading, what it says is whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne. So what worship is defined as is giving glory, honor, and thanks. Can I real quick just talk about what those words mean? Give glory sounds like a religious word. In the ancient world, it, it was definitely religious, but it, it also just, frankly, it just means to give weight to. In fact, the, the Hebrew word for glory and the Hebrew word for weight or fat even is the same word. And to give glory something is to put weight on it, is to give it weight, to give it the heft it deserves. To take glory away from something is to treat it lightly. You can see even in English we have language that picks up on this. You know, he puts a lot of weight on that or he takes that lightly is actually glory language. When we give glory to God, when we worship God, we put weight on him. We say he is the thing that matters. Honor, the word honor, the next word means the same thing. To elevate, to honor is to put above other things. You honor someone by putting them above other people. You, the, the opposite of honor would be shame. You shame someone by putting, putting them below other people. You also have giving thanks there in verse nine. I'm not gonna say a lot about that, but an integral part of worship is to give thanks to God for who he is and what he's done. Verse 11, chapter four, verse 11, uh, a little bit more specifically, worthy are you, O Lord, our God. In fact, this is the, uh, um, this is kind of the key refrain through here. Chapter four, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power. 
Look down, chapter five, verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals. A little bit farther, verse 12. Worthy is the lamb who was slain. So giving worth to something. To say that, in fact, the word worship is just an, it's an old English word that means worthship. It just means ascribing worth to somebody or to something. To say, this has value. That's, what, that's all that worship is. It's not, sometimes we think about worship as like, well, it's gotta be mystical or I've gotta think deep thoughts or it's gotta be experiential, I need to feel something. It's actually, all those things are important, but they are all thinking about God, feeling God, um, uh, 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 experiencing God tangibly. These are all side effects of what worship really is, which is ascribing worth to God that he deserves, ascribing the worth that he deserves, which um, we do this all the time. This is, we, we worship all the time. We ascribe worth to things. We say, that person is really good at that, or that kid is really cute, or that hockey player is really good, we, or that piece of music is really amazing. We ascribe worth to things. We, th we, we say, these things have value. And when we come to God, what we're called to do is to ascribe ultimate worth to him, is to say there is nothing more worthy than him. Jesus tells a parable about this where he says the kingdom of God is like a field where a guy finds some treasure in the field. And then he goes home and he, takes every, he liquidates all of his property, takes all of his cash out of the bank, cashes in his Roth IRAs, everything. He takes all that money and buys that field to get that treasure, which is the greatest worth in the world. And that's what worship is. Worship is saying, God, you have ultimate worth. You are worth more than everything else. So, thought experiment this morning. What is the thing that's most valuable to you? What's the thing that you put most worth on? What is the thing that you would spend all of your money or all of your time getting? What's the thing that if you lose it or if you can never achieve it, you would consider your life to be disappointing? A letdown, something that if you lost, it, what, what is the thing that if you lost or you never got it, it, what is the thing that you're most afraid of losing or of never achieving is another way to say this. What's the thing that you would rather die than live without? If this is taken away from me, I'll just, I, I would just rather die. Think about that just for a second, thought experiment. All right, 75% of us said it's God, which means that 75% of us are lying right now because that, that's not the way we actually live our lives. We don't live our lives saying the worship of the creator God is the most valuable thing in the entire world and I would prefer to lose everything in my life but Jesus. 25% of you were honest. You said my kids or my good reputation or more crassly if you're being super honest like my house or my money or all the job accomplishments I've had through the years, or all the times I hit those big shots in basketball when I was in high school. I couldn't live without the memory of those. Now, what worship is doing, so, so all of us struggle with that. All of us struggle ascribing ultimate worth to things that don't have ultimate worth. And what a worship service does, what Revelation four through five does, is pulls us in and momentarily takes that lie and makes it truth. So I said that 75% of you were lying, but I don't really think that you are. I think that really in this moment, you know that God is the most important thing in the world. 
when we sing, lo, he comes with clouds descending, and we pray, Jesus, come and take the kingdom. I think that you know that's the most valuable thing in the history of the universe. I think that when you come to the rail and you receive Christ's body and blood and the bread and wine of the Holy Sacrament, you know, you actually, in that moment, you're like, this is it. This is all I need. Of course, the problem is, is like, then we, we go outside and there's advertisements and all different other kinds of things. There's the pressures of like, you know, getting the kids to their, all, all their events on time and all that stuff that, that push us away from that. But what a worship service does, what Revelation 4 through 5 does, is pulls us back in and says, just for a few minutes, don't believe the lie. And if this week, you can add a few more minutes to not believing the lie, you can be pulled into this new reality. We can come to believe that what's happening here in this room right now is the most important thing in the world. It's not the thing that you tack onto your week because I need a little boost of inspiration to get through the hard times, but that this actually is the only real thing that happens in our week. And everything else that happens, I'm not saying it's not real, that would be the wrong thing to say, but it's not as real as this. More on, what, more on what that means in just a moment when I talk about why it's happening. Christian worship pulls us back into this cosmic reality. It turns the 75% of us who are lying when we say God is the most important thing into our world briefly as truth tellers, knowing that it is true. And hopefully, all of us, 100% of us, empowered to leave and say, I'm gonna carry that with me throughout the week. I'm gonna carry Revelation four through five in my head, in my heart, in my body, in my actions, in my words, in my thoughts, all throughout the week. Jesus Christ, the lamb who was slain for me, is ultimate reality and is the most important thing in the world. Why is it happening? Why is this worship happening here in Revelation four through five? Okay, let's do some history just for a minute. I, I, I pointed out to you that the key refrain in all of their worship music, except for the first one, the Isaiah six one, is worthy are you, our Lord and God. Look at verse 11, that first line, worthy are you, our Lord and God. That's an important line. I've, you already know, I've, I've emphasized this, that you can't understand Revelation without understanding the Old Testament. There's, a, there's another thing that you, can't, that you have to really have to understand Revelation, and it's this. You kind of have to know what's going on in the Roman Empire at the time. It says here that, the, the, that their hymn starts off, worthy are you. Now what's interesting is that phrase, worthy are you, is not a phrase that's in the Bible. That the phrase, worthy are you, God, never shows up in the Bible. Now, every once in a while, there's a, a, in the English translations, there's something that's kind of like that, but it's never this phrase. Because this phrase actually isn't a biblical phrase. This phrase comes from the Roman Empire. The commentator Ian Paul says this in his commentary on Revelation in the Tyndale New Testament commentary. This acclamation that God is worthy occurs nowhere else in biblical worship of God, but it belongs instead to acclamation of the emperor whenever his acts of beneficence match the power of his office. So in the Roman Empire, when the emperor, who is like the ultimate patron of the entire empire, would give money to a city to you know, rebuild their library, which had fallen, now whatever it was, what, is he gonna do? what would be said was like, he is worthy. Oxios is the, is the Greek word. He is worthy of praise. The word's not ever used of God, in that phrase, except for here in Revelation, where it's taken out of the Roman Empire and plugged into Jesus. Here's, here's why I know this is the case. The rest of that line is, look at chapter four, verse 11. Worthy are you, our Lord and God. Calling Jesus, calling God Lord and God is also not a normal biblical phrase. It happens every once in a while, but it's not normal. You know, if, if you were John's original 
readers, you know what you would think of when you heard that phrase, Lord and God? You probably wouldn't immediately think of God, even for those of you who would be super devout Christians. You would think of somebody else, and I'll tell you who it is. I'm gonna quote to you from Suetonius. Suetonius was a Roman historian. He wrote a book, which, I mean, you can, there might be a copy of it over at Books a Million. It's, it's, it's easy to read. It's actually kind of fun to read uh, 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 in a sort of like graphically disgusting way. The, the book is called The Twelve Caesars, and it tells the history of the Caesars up to his own time. And in his chapter on Domitian, who many scholars think was the Caesar when, when John was writing Romans. Here's what he says about Domitian. So he's going through a list of like th- ways that Domitian, the Roman Caesar at the end of the first century, was super arrogant. It's kind of a jerk. And he says this. This is Suetonius. Arrogantly, Domitian began a letter. So Domitian sends a letter out to the empire. He says, arrogantly, Domitian began a letter, Suetonius says, which his agents were to circulate, which began with the words... Our Lord and God instructs you to do this. And then finishes the letter. He started to begin his letters this way. Domitian did. He would send out a letter and say, Our Lord and God instructs you to do whatever this command is. Suetonius goes on to say, Because of this, Lord and God became his regular title, both in writing and conversation. Domitian insisted, You will call me your Lord and God. Now, Revelation 4.11, John sees this vision. And all these angels and all the elders are gathered around saying, worthy are you, our Lord and God, but they are not looking at Domitian Caesar, they are looking at God. In other words, the politicians of this world are going to claim God-like status. Your politicians don't do this out loud. They're too smart. They actually know that if, you know, they don't say I'm a Christian, that they're probably not gonna get voted in. And they probably don't even believe it. I'm certain they don't even believe it. But they act like it because that's how you get power. You have to pretend like you're Lord and God if you're gonna get people to vote for you. Or in the case of Caesar, you're gonna get people to submit to you. And what happens is Jesus comes along and he says, no, you can give to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, but you will give to God what belongs to God. And what primarily belongs to God is worship. Worthy are you, God. Our Lord and God, worthy are you. No one else. And this is, just, this is just a little bit of a foretaste of what the book of Revelation is primarily going to be about. The claims of the empire against Jesus for Caesar, their desire to crush the church as a subversive voice against the status quo, and how Jesus will win. All rulers and powers will win, and because of that, only Jesus is worthy of worship. Now, there's several ways that this comes out. I'm going to work through these really quick. Jesus is worthy of worship. Caesar is not worthy of worship. The worship of Caesar is a cheap, shadow, idolatrous, fake of the true worship of the one true God because Caesar can't do what Jesus does. That earns Jesus real worship. What is that? First of all, God is eternal. Chapter four, verse eight. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and is and is to come. Caesars like to pretend like they're eternal Caesars like to pretend, whether it's, a, whether it's Domitian Caesar or whether it's a presidential Caesar or a prime minister Caesar or a governor Caesar, mayor Caesar, they like to pretend like I'm here and the way I think it should be done is the new status quo. Don't be on the wrong side of history, vote for me. They like to pretend that they're eternal, but it doesn't take more than just a cursory glance at history to know that politicians and political parties and political movements come and go. They cycle in and out. And the political party or the movement that you think is so powerful now and overwhelming 
In a few generations, they're going to look back and, well, look at that quaint little thing that they all thought that was so big and powerful. And now everything is completely different. But the one thing that lasts forever is the God who was and is and is to come. And if you want to be on the right side of history, you will align yourself with the God who was and is and is to come. Later on, little bonus material, we'll meet a Caesar who John describes who was and is no more in a sort of parody on this God who was and is and is to come. Don't believe it. Only God is eternal. Only God is the creator. Caesar can claim to own the whole Roman Empire, but only of God can it be said, chapter 4, verse 11, worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power, for you created all things, and by your will they existed and were created. Caesar can say, by my will, everything in the empire holds together, but there's no way that he can tell the lie that by my will, everything exists. Even he doesn't have the guts for that. You and I know the creator God is the one who is worthy of worship. Also, Caesar can claim to be savior, and in fact, he did. I read to you from the Priene inscription several weeks ago where he called himself, he didn't call himself the people of Priene, called him soter, the Greek word for savior. But really, he doesn't actually save. Only Jesus can save. Chapter five, verse nine. Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and tongue and language people and nation, and you've made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. So you have the lamb who was slain, the, the God who was killed, the God who became dead, but you also have the God who rules and reigns and has turned his people into a kingdom of priests. Both these things are true. Jesus is both the weakest person in the entire universe and the most powerful person in the entire universe. God is both the most shameful being in the entire universe because of the cross and the most glorious being in the, entire, in the entire universe. And one thing that happens in John's vision which captures this really powerfully is found in chapter five, verse five. Uh, John is sad because nobody's worthy to open the scrolls and he's weeping. Uh, more on the scrolls in just a second. And one of the elders, verse five, says to John, weep no more, behold the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the animal that symbolizes power and sovereignty and lordship. And so John is gonna go look at this powerful beast. He's gonna go look at the lion of the tribe of Judah from verse five, but what does he see? Verse six, between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it was slain. He looks to see the lion and instead he sees the slain lamb. Now which one is it? Is the angel telling a lie? Is it not really a lion? Are his eyes deceiving him? Is it really a lion, but it just sort of looks like a lamb? No, it's both. Jesus is both lion and lamb. He's both sovereign and savior. He's both king of the universe and the slave of the universe. He's both the greatest of all and the least of all. I'll just make one little application point and then we'll move on. I don't want to sit on this too long. But Jesus is what you need. Some of you know you need this. In your life, you are powerless. You feel weak and you feel helpless. It might be like sickness that you're struggling against or some relationship scenario that you just can't seem to get the solution to or some job situation where like it's out of your control and there's nothing you can do. The lion of Judah, the one who rules all things is on your side. But some of you, you need sacrifice for. Nobody in your life, nobody in your life has given themselves to you. I was uh, t talking to a guy this week who said to me, the, uh, it's super interesting, and I hope he's listening. And if he, he's not here this morning, but if he's listening, uh, I am talking about you. He said, the one thing that I struggle with is a vision. I don't struggle with the vision of God and Jesus and like the 
power of God. What I struggle with is like the notion that there would be a Jesus who would love me, that God would love me. And there's a lamb who's willing to die so that you could live. There was a lamb who's willing to give up all power so that you could be a king and a priest. We, every one of us needs different aspects of Jesus at different times. All of us need all aspects of Jesus at all times. And that's what we get. We get the lion and the lamb. Okay, what's this about the scroll? Only Jesus is worthy to open the scroll. Well, what is the scroll? I don't have time to get into this. I'm gonna give a, a, some really cool bonus information in the adult Bible study afterwards downstairs. But I'll just say this right now. If you look throughout the rest of Revelation, the unrolling of the scroll is the unrolling of God's, it's the unrolling of God's plans for human history. Think of it like this. Think of it as an architect who walks into the room and sets down on a table, one of those cool um, cardboard tubes architects have that have the plans inside that you can pull out and unroll. And nobody is allowed to open that up. And as long as the scroll is sitting there unopened, nothing's gonna get done. The new building's not gonna get built. And nobody can open it except for Jesus. But because Jesus has the power to open it, because he is worthy to open the scrolls, the whole plan of human history that we're gonna see unfold in Revelation 6 and following is going to happen. Jesus is sovereign, he does win. It's guaranteed. The scroll's gonna get unrolled, the seals are gonna be unsealed, it's going to happen, Jesus is going to win. Therefore, he's worthy of worship even now. He's the creator, he's eternal, he's the savior, the lion, lamb, and he is the one who's, in, who's sovereign over all of history. In whatever circumstance that you are struggling with now, he's going to fix it. He's going to make it good. He's going to renew all things. Okay, finally, where is it happening? This is really cool. This won't take very long. We'll be done. Let's look, look, look at chapter five, verses 11 through 13 at the end. So uh, John looks, and I heard around the throne, living creatures, the elders, the voice of many angels, numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. Okay, most of us who are following along are cool with that. There's angels in heaven, right? I mean, there's angels around God's throne room. We can make sense of that, but check out verse 13. And I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that's in them saying to him who sits on, joining in the song of praise, to him who sits on the throne of the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. So what's happening? The past two weeks, we've begun with the seven churches. We're on earth and things are screwed up. Like, Everything's, it's good. There's a lot of good that's going on in those seven churches, but there's a lot of screwed up stuff too. Us struggling with my sin, struggling with fear and weakness, struggling with oppression from the forces that are against Jesus and his church. All that's happening. And then in chapter four, you get to this vision of this eternal worship service around the throne. And people have come to this before, and I, and I bet some of you did too, and think, okay, chapters two and verses, chapters three, this, the, the church is on earth. It's kind of a weird way to start. Chapters four, now we're getting into the vision. But let me, let, me just, let me point out to you what we just did the past two weeks and this week. We start off on earth here in St. James, the screwed up and yet redeemed church. We started off there. And then we went through that portal to see God's throne room. And all of a sudden we're transported to heaven. And there's this burst of colors that is God the Father. And there's the sevenfold spirit. And there's the lion and the lamb. And there's all the angels worshiping. But before you know it, the scene has moved back to earth at the end of chapter five. All the creatures on earth and under the earth and in the seas are all worshiping God as well. And so the answer, 
where is this happening is, well, yes, that's where it's happening. It's in the throne room of God in heaven, and it's also happening here on earth right now. It's happening in this room. Well, does it look, this looks more like Revelation 2 and 3. Well, I know it looks like Revelation 2 and 3. I'm not, it is Revelation 2 and 3. We are all screwed up. But it's also Revelation 4 through 5. Because while the angels are praising, while the four beasts are praising, while the 24 elders are praising, bowing down before God and Jesus in the Spirit, so are also, verse 11, all creatures on earth, in heaven and under the earth and in the seas. We are joining with them. We are participating with them. How is this possible? This is possible because Jesus is the connection point between these two realities, between St. James Lutheran Church and the eternal throne room of God in the heavens. There is a portal, there is a door, there is a connection point, and the name of that connection point is Jesus of Nazareth. Let me give you real quick a line from Ephesians chapter one. Ephesians 1.20 says that God raised Jesus from the dead, seated him at his right hand, ascended him to his right hand in the heavenly places, far above all rule and authority and power and dominion, language that very much reflects Revelation 4 through 5, and above every name that's named, not only in this age, but in the age to come, bridging the present and the future of God and God's people. And he put all things under his feet and gave Jesus as head over all things to the church, which is his body, the fullness of him who fills all in all. The question is, where is Jesus? Jesus is both then now and in the future. He's the one who was and is and is to come. Jesus is both at the throne room of God and Jesus is here right now. He's both there and here. Jesus is the connection point, the bridge between the temporal and the eternal, the bridge between the finite and the infinite, the bridge between heaven and earth, the bridge between holiness and brokenness, the bridge between God and humanity. And when you and I come together to worship, when you and I say together like we do every Sunday, with the Sanctus, what we're doing is not pretending like we're worshiping God. We are actually in God's presence at that moment. Now, I, I preach something like this on All Saints Day. When you, so a lot of us, we've got lost, we've got loved ones who've passed away and are with Jesus now. You are never closer to them when you are gathered around the throne with them. They are shoulder to shoulder with you. When you are praising and worshiping God here at St. James Lutheran Church, you are actually praising and worshiping God at the same time with your lost loved ones who've gone on before, and with the angels, and with Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. This is what happens in the preaching of his word. This is what happens. In, this is why Holy Communion is not a thought exercise to help us think about Jesus and salvation more. Holy Communion is this bridging of the gap. The reading of God's word in, 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 in public worship is a bridging of the gap. It's a connection between these two realities so that in this moment they become one. Let me close with this. We're gonna sing this in just a few minutes. And I want you to, to, to think of it with me when we do this. This is why we do the Sanctus every Sunday. It's not because we're just tired, you know, we just need something to say, so let's do the Sanctus before communion. It's because it's Revelation 2, 3, 4, 5 reality. God's people on earth, God's people on heaven joined together around Jesus of Nazareth. Every Sunday we say this, therefore with angels and archangels and with all the hosts of heaven, we praise and glorify your name singing, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty, the whole earth is full of your glory. Let's pray. Father, this morning as we come to communion, this morning as we've heard your word preached, open our eyes to the glory that is you. God, give us this apocalyptic vision, staring here at the front of this sanctuary with the orange carpet and the bumbling sermon that actually, Father, open our eyes to the fact that we are gathered around the throne of you and your spirit and your lamb 
Give us a vision of the lion lamb who's come to save us. Help us to join in this fellowship with all the angels and with all the saints. And we'll give you the praise and glory for it. Amen. The world is broken. We do. Do you feel the shadows deepen? We do. But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? We do. Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Is all creation groaning? It is. Is a new creation coming? It is. Is the glory of the Lord to be the light within our midst? It is. Is it good that we remind ourselves of this? Is anyone worthy? Is anyone whole? Is anyone able to break the seal and open the scroll? The Lion of Judah, who conquered the grave. He is David's root and the Lamb who died to ransom the slain. Is he worthy? Is he worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is he worthy of this? He is. Does the Father truly? love us he does does the spirit move among us he does and does Jesus our Messiah hold forever those he loves he does does our God intend to dwell again with us Tribe, every nation and tongue, he 
has made us a kingdom and priest to God to reign with the Son. Is He worthy? Is He worthy of all blessing and honor and glory? Is He worthy? Is He worthy? Is He worthy of this? He is. Is He worthy? Is He worthy? He Father, thank you for being such a good God and for loving us and for giving yourself to us, for making yourself king of the universe, for taking over the world that you created that we took from you when we rebelled against you, for doing it in a way, Lord, for conquering us with gentleness and mercy, for not just taking us over and making us slaves, but taking us over and making us your children, your daughters and sons. We praise and glorify you uh, for that, Lord, in your mercy. Father, be with everyone who's struggling this morning in lots of grief, lots of physical pain and sickness, lots of loneliness, lots of struggles with mental health issues. Lord, would you meet us where we're at? And by the power of your sovereign love, would you fix us either now, whether partially or fully, or at the resurrection of the dead when you make the new creation? We trust you for that. I pray especially this morning that you would be with Florine Hall, who's uh, very sick, and that you'd be with Rosanna Bargan's brother, who also is very sick. I pray that you would bring hope and comfort to the family of Josephine Steele, uh, Lee Dunbar's sister, who passed away this week, and that our eyes would be turned to you in the power of your resurrection to solve all our problems and to fix all things. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray that you'd be with the ministries of our church and that you would continue to bless them and pour strength and energy to them. Allow us to see the fruit that you have planned for us, the fruit that you've planned for us from before the foundation of the world. The fruit, maybe not that we're looking for, but the fruit that is the fruit of your kingdom. And I pray especially this morning that you'd be with our youth group and our youth group leaders and all of our kids involved with that, that you would pour out your Holy Spirit on them and, and grow them closer together to each other as they grow closer to you. I also pray that you'd be with Mosaic Pregnancy Center and that you would bless that ministry as they seek to defend and serve mothers and the unborn and that you would um, uh, use them, use all of us, Father, to, by the power of your Holy Spirit, convince our culture and our world of how much you value and love life, the life that you've created in your image especially. Lord, in your mercy. Father, I pray for you, I, I pray to you, especially uh, at the beginning of uh, this, which is uh, Lutheran Schools Week, I pray that you would bless our students and uh, the teachers at our Lutheran schools, that you would be with all of our students who are too many to name, but that you'd be with Shanna and Ruth and Dave and Katie and Will and Becca and Angela and uh, uh, Chrissy and Kara 
and everybody who's involved, the, na the names I might have missed, who are involved in, in Lutheran education, and that you would bless our schools as they minister your word to our students. And, and I pray, too, that you would bless all of our uh, public school families and teachers and um, homeschool families, and that, uh, again, too many students to pray for by name, but I pray that you'd be with uh, Jared and Sherry and Jen and Ashley and Abby as they minister to kids in your name as well, and that you would allow our church, St. James Lutheran Church, to be a place where we fill up on you and then minister your gospel to our kids through deeds of love and deeds of service and, when possible, with the actual words of the gospel and, and allow us to see our kids, our biological kids, but especially this morning, our students and all the kids in our church grow up to love and serve you and to be very, very aware of how much you love them and have served them with your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, in your mercy. We pray all these prayers in the name of your son, Jesus, who is the lion and the lamb who was slain for our sins and has brought us into your throne room now so that we can gather with, with you. You have turned this space with us in it this morning into your throne room. And in your presence, Father, we humbly and yet boldly ask for your grace and for your mercy and for your sovereign and loving and all-wise answers to our prayers through our Savior and more than our Savior, our brother Jesus. Amen. The Lord be with you. Lift up your hearts. Let us give thanks to the Lord our God. It is truly good, right, and salutary that we should at all times and in all places give thanks to you, Holy Lord, Almighty Father, everlasting God, through Jesus Christ our Lord, for what had been hidden from before the foundation of the world, you've made known to the nations in your Son. In him, being found in the substance of our mortal nature, you have manifested the fullness of your glory. Therefore, with angels and archangels, and with all the company of heaven, we laud and magnify your glorious name, evermore praising you and singing. pray in Jesus' name, the prayer that he taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever and ever. Amen. Our Lord Jesus Christ, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat. This is my body given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink of it, all of you. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, shed for you for the forgiveness of all your sins. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. The peace of the Lord be with you always. Amen. You may be seated. Oh, Jesus Christ. 
stand. And now may this true body and blood of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, strengthen you and preserve you and keep you in the one true faith to life everlasting. Depart in Christ's peace. Amen. Bless the Lord. The Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face shine upon you and be gracious unto you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his peace. Amen. Look around. Find somebody you haven't talked to recently. Build relationship. Go in peace.